Stanford University. Uh, good evening. My name is Abbas Emilani. I'm the Mogaddam Director of the Iranian Studies Program here at Stanford University. This is the first of our uh, yearly program. We are going to have about 20 programs this year. Uh, this is a very auspicious uh, beginning to that, and it's not by accident. Uh, we wanted to have our best talk first to entice your appetite to come back for more. Uh, these events are made possible by generous gifts from uh, the Dario Bari Endowment for Persian Letters and the Mogadam Program in Iranian Studies. Uh, our events, of course, are not possible without the work, the tireless work of uh, Ms. Sherpa, who's not here right now, but she usually is here, and uh, Tatiana, who designs these beautiful posters. Uh, she has an incredible knack for combining image and words to create these posters that are, for me, a pleasure to watch. Before introducing our tonight's speaker, let me briefly tell you about our next event. It is on November 12th. It will be in the Coverly Auditorium, and it will be the occasion for giving the second Beta Prize for uh, Literature and uh, Freedom. The winner of this year's award, uh, this new winner, is uh, Goli Taraki. Her prose is elegant and supple. Her stories are searing in their honesty. But there is also a quality to her lectures uh, that make them, in themselves, a work of art. Uh, she has uh, a biting sense of humor. And uh, her talk is My Two Worlds, titled My Two Worlds. Uh, and if you have never seen her uh, give a talk, uh, even if you have read her work, I strongly urge you to come. It is truly a wonderful experience. Uh, I already told you that if you're not on our mailing list, there is a sheet out there. And if you uh, add uh, your name, we will send you information. Uh, I'm also very happy to announce that through generous donations from the Flora Family Foundation and the Hariri family, uh, we are going to be able to offer a six-month fellowship to Mohsen Enamju. He'll be arriving in October 14th. He'll be here for six months. He'll give some talks. He'll have some performances. Uh, for the first uh, three months, he will be a humanities fellow. And then he will be an artist in residence for the music department for the latter part. Uh, if you are on our list, we will, of course, send you announcements about both his talk uh, or talks and his performance. Now, uh, to our speaker. Uh, th those of us who have the privilege, privilege and the pleasure of knowing Dr. Farhad Daftari know that it is incredibly hard to get him to travel to a place as far away as Stanford. Suffice it to say that today's event is the culmination of almost four years of my incessant asking, occasional begging, sometimes beseeching, and finally getting him to say yes under duress. It is, I think, far from hyperbole to also say that there is no scholar in the world who has done more to help us understand the intricacies of the Ismaili ideology and theology the contours of its rich history than Farhad Daftari. In dozens of books, many of them translated in several languages, 
and more than a hundred scholarly articles. He has mapped out the early development, the sectarian evolution, the philosophical underpinnings, and the historical progress of the Ismaili faith, and how it manifests itself in the Western consciousness. His truly impressive erudition, his impeccable and exhaustive methodology, his legendary patience in searching archives and collections for the smallest details of Ismaili history, and finally his supple and parsimonious prose, free from the temptation of jargonist exhibitionism, a malady common to the works of a scholarship, combined to give his impressive body of work their unique place in Islamic historiography. He was trained as an economist, receiving a PhD in economics from the University of California at Berkeley. And in what I think was a most fortuitous turn of event for Islamic and Ismaili historiography, he forfeited the riches of a career in economics for the emotional riches of a life of monastic dedication <laughs> to scholarship. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Farhad Daftari and his lovely wife who has uh, traveled with him from London, Mrs. Daftari. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. Well, thank you very much, Professor Milani, for those very kind words. I'm delighted to be here uh, tonight with you and uh, so open this so new series uh, of lectures of this auspicious uh, center of Iran studies here. Uh, the subject matter is for my talk is, you see, rather complex, as we can imagine. But I shall try to give you some uh, a survey, in a sense, but really snippets uh, and highlights within a survey, which can, I hope, uh, be connected uh, together in a more or less coherent uh, fashion. The, you know, uh, the Ismailis, as you know, actually represent a major branch of Shi Islam, and they have had a very long, complex, and complicated uh, history, which really dates back to the middle of the 8th century. On two occasions, uh, they succeeded in founding states, initially at the Fatimid Caliphate, based mostly in uh, Egypt, which was ruled uh, by a series of Ismaili Imams. Uh, and secondly, the principality of Alamut uh, in northern Iran with a branch in Syria. The Iranians have also made uh, very significant contributions to Ismaili intellectual development, and they, they also played key roles at, uh, at various times in Ismaili history. Today, the Ismailis are comprised of uh, some 15 millions who are uh, uh, scattered in more than 25 countries of the world, 
in Asia, Africa, uh, uh, as well as the various parts of the Middle East, Europe, and North America. And uh, the so members of the main branch of Ismailism actually have always had a line uh, of present imams, which today is represented by by the 49th Imam. <coughs> uh, 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 who is known to the world as His Highness Sidi Al Khan. Uh, one main feature of Ismaili history, or more specifically historiography, has been the fact that for the most part, the Ismailis have been uh, perceived, studied, and evaluated almost exclusively until uh, more recent times on the basis of evidence collected or often even fabricated by their adversaries. As a result, they came to be misrepresented with a whole series of myths and legends uh, circulating about them both in the West as well as in the Muslim world. So to provide an appropriate context for our talk, it will be useful to spend a few minutes to, uh, to see how this picture, how the perception of the Ismailis actually uh, sort of developed over time, and why were they, why did they receive such a negative press, uh, so to speak, uh, within, uh, within see, the Muslim world, which is dominated by the Sunni Muslims. The Shia, as, as you may know, the, the Shia Muslims from the beginning believed that the Prophet Muhammad had actually, uh, you see, appointed uh, his successor on the divine command, and that that successor was his cousin and son-in-law Ali, and that uh, therefore the leadership of the Ummah or the Muslim community by divine command should have been handed to Ali and then after Ali amongst his descendants, the so-called Ali Imams. But in actuality, things, you see, did not work out that way. And the Shia, therefore, uh, you see, organized to voice uh, their protest against what had actually occurred. And in the course of time, the, the, the Shi'i Muslims themselves became subdivided into a number of groups. Eventually, only three or four of such groups survived. But in the eighth uh, century, especially after the success of the Abbasid revolution, uh, which culminated in the coming to power of the Abbasids in the year uh, 7, uh, uh, 749, uh, 750. The bulk of the Shia by that time had recognized a line of Ali imams 
descended from uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib. And by that time, the, the imam of the time was Ja'far al-Sadiq, who actually succeeded in the course of his imamat to consolidate Shi'ism on, on a quiescent basis. And this tradition was maintained by the so-called 12 Shia, who were to appear subsequently. But from early on, the Ismailis, who themselves compromised, I mean, who actually came to represent one of the branches of the Imam Shia, they in fact represented the active, the activist branch, the revolutionary branch. They were uh, not happy with the, uh, with the state of affairs as they had developed, and they aimed to organize a revolutionary movement the overall aim of which was to install their imam to actual to rule to the actual leadership of the Muslim community. And it was in the service of this aim that the Ismailis or missionaries or Da'is operated in almost every Islamic land from North Africa all the way uh, to Central Asia and in various parts of Iran. By the year 909, the early success of, of the Ismailis actually, uh, it culminated in the foundation of the Fatimid Caliphate under the leadership of the Ismaili Imam of the time. And that meant that henceforth, the potential challenge to the established Sunni order had now become actualized. And it was from that time that uh, the Abbasid Sunni establishment, or the regime, the ruling to the regime, they embarked on a well-orchestrated, organized, uh, sort of, uh, I would say, literary campaign against the Ismailis. And the overall aim of this campaign was to defame the Ismailis and to represent the Ismailis as the arch enemy of Islam, whose aim was to actually destroy Islam from within. And in order to support these allegations, a number of Sunni polemicists, they began to write texts in which all sorts of heretical teachings and practices were attributed to the Ismailis. And these books, these texts, actually uh, did circulate widely. And over time, they came to be accepted as reliable and accurate descriptions of Ismaili teachings, beliefs, and practices. And they became uh, source materials for a variety of Muslim authors, theologians, jurists, heresiographers, anybody who wanted to write anything about the Ismailis would use these polemical, these anti-Ismaili polemical sources as reliable source material. And it was in these sources that a seven stage of initiation was attributed to the Ismailis uh, with, with, with the ultimate stage or uh, phase 
of atheism. And of course, uh, they also denied the allied genealogy of the Ismaili Imams. And later on, uh, when in Iran, a new branch of Ismailism was founded under the, the, under the initial leadership of Hassan Sabah, the Ismailis of the Iranian lands were now uh, began to uh, be targeted for a new wave of sort of literary attacks initiated by the foremost Sunni scholar author of the time, Al-Ghazali. This uh, more or less uh, 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 this situation, this state of affairs, continued unchanged until uh, I would say late to the 19th century. Now, meanwhile, the Crusaders, the medieval uh, the Europeans, had come into contact with the Syrian branch of, uh, of, of the Ismailis in the context of their uh, sort of campaigns to liberate Jerusalem. The Crusaders, when they arrived in the Near East, they were completely ignorant of Islam and its internal you see, divisions as a religion. They stayed in the Near East for almost 200 years. They founded four states and they had numerous interactions and channels of communications with Muslims. But proximity to the Muslims did not improve the knowledge of the Crusaders and uh, medieval Europe of things Islamic. And for instance, as one example of the sort of ignorance which continued to uh, be manifested, we have the case uh, of William of Tyre, who was one of the most learned uh, sort of historians of the Crusades. He had spent more than 20 years in the Holy Land. And in his book, he says that after years of traveling and discussion with you see, Muslims, he had come to, he had finally come to understand the points or the main point of difference between the Shia and the Sunnis. And he sums up the situation as thus. He says, the message of Islam was originally intended for Ali, but the ark Angel Jebrail, he, he became confused just regarding the address, and he, <laughs> he gave the message to Muhammad. And hence, the reason for, for, the, for the difference, you see, between these, these two communities and so on, so forth. Now, the same people who had remained so ignorant of Islam now began to claim to have found uh, secret information about the secret practices of, of the Ismailis of Syria. And this was, this really provided the ground, the background for the so-called assassin legends. These were uh, the, really the tales, I would say, which were fabricated by the crusaders and their Western uh, chroniclers, 
just regarding again the secret uh, the secret practices of of the Ismailis, which found uh, their culmination in the synthesis proposed by Marco Polo uh, um, uh, in the form of uh, the secret garden of the paradise in which the young Ismailis were led and where they sort of were permitted to enjoy four tastes of the paradise and then they were given hashish or some such intoxicating potion and they were taken out of this uh, sort of, uh, of this uh, secret garden and then they were sent on senseless murder missions by their mischievous leader the old man of the mountain now what's actually interesting from our uh, perspective is that these tales again like their counterpart in the Sunni world were actually accepted by generations of Europeans again as accurate so, uh, descriptions of secret practices of the Ismailis and they came down as such and in the 19th century when scientific orientalism began on the basis of the availability of Islamic manuscripts, the Orientalists too unwillingly or perhaps unknowingly were obliged to lend their seal of support to these uh, to both of to both of these categories of misrepresentations, the anti-Ismaili polemics of the Sunni writers and the assassin legends of of the medieval crusaders because whatever they had to say was based on these two categories of sources. It was a bit later that things began to change drastically, and the change was brought about by the recovery and study of a large number of genuine Ismaili texts for the first time. These texts had been preserved secretly in a large number of private collections in Yemen, Syria, Iran, Central Asia, uh, and India. And they began to be made available to scholars, especially in India, where uh, the Ismaili Society of Bombay was, you see, founded with a major, you see, library. And as a result of this new scholarship, a completely new, uh, I would say, image began to emerge in connection with Ismaili history uh, and teachings. And this new uh, picture, which is still ongoing now, has proven to be as amazing as the sort of legends which had uh, been circulating before. This so new image shows the richness and uh, the diversity of the intellectual traditions elaborated by the, the Ismailis, the rich sort of heritage that was produced by the Ismailis at various times in their history, uh, mostly in Arabic, but in the Iranian lands, also in Farsi, because from the beginning, Hassan 
صحبا از وی شلسی chose Persian in preference to Arabic as the religious language of the Ismaili community of the Persian speaking lands. And it's, it's in that, uh, and it, it's also in that context that one can appreciate the work that is currently being done by the Institute of Ismaili Studies in London, where the largest collection of such manuscripts uh, has has been preserved and they they have been cataloged and and they are made accessible to uh, uh, to scholars you see worldwide. Now it's on the basis of this modern scholarship in Ismaili studies that we have now a much to a better understanding of the various phases in Ismaili history and the contributions made. Uh, by various groups, including especially to the Iranians. Now, in this uh, second part of my talk, I shall try to give you an overview of the parts that relate to the Iranian lands. It was on the death of Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, as I mentioned, in the year 765, that the Imami Shia, who were the most important Shi'i group at the time, were split into various groups, two of which can be identified with the earliest Ismailis. Now, the objective of these early Ismaili groups, as noted, was to install their Imam to the, to, to the actual sort of leadership of the entire you see, Muslim community. And the da'is of the community, they carried this message uh, throughout to the Islamic world, beginning uh, with southern Iraq and Iran. In fact, the Ismailis of that region and also other parts of the Iranian world have had the longest continued a, a continued history compared to all the other Ismaili communities, uh, especially followed by those in Yemen and Syria. One of the early Imams, who was a grandson of Imam al-Sadiq, by the name of Yusuf Muhammad, he in fact he emigrated from the Hejaz, which was the seat of the Ali Duzi family, spent some time in Basra, and then moved on uh, to Khuzestan, the south, the southwestern uh, province of Iran, where he spent uh, the latter part of his life. And it was from there that he, he remained in contact with the bulk of the Ismailis, who, like other early Shia, were based in Kufa. It was, again, uh, from Khuzestan, uh, that specifically uh, the city of Ahwaz, that one of the earliest da'is by the name of Hussein Ahwazi was sent to Iraq, where he converted Hamdan Qarmat, a, a very well-known early Ismaili figure, and his brother-in-law, Abdan. Abdan himself came from Khuzestan. And Abdan, in turn, he converted a number of people 
and educated a number of Dais, including Abu Sa'id Jannabi from the port of Ganova in Fars, who later became the founder of the Karmati state of Bahrain in the year eight, 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 uh, 899. But it was mainly after the middle of the ninth century that uh, the Ismaili Dais, almost as if uh, suddenly, begin to appear in various regions, especially in various parts of a region in Iran, so referred to as the Jebal by the Arabs. This was this actually covered uh, the central and west central parts of Iran, and it included the cities of Qom, Kashan and Hamadan and so on. Da'is were active from that so early period in, in these regions. But by contrast to the Da'is active in Iraq and later in Yemen, where they sort of addressed their sort of message to large numbers because they wanted to organize a revolutionary movement, the same strategy was initially attempted in Iran. It failed. And therefore, in the Iranian lands from early on, they adopted a new strategy. And that was to address the elite and the most educated strata of the society. We see this very clearly in the work of the fifth uh, chief Dai of Ray, or the Jabal, Dai Abu Hatem Razi who actually you see, managed to convert the governor of, of the city of Rey, as well as a number of rulers from the dynasties of the Justanids and others. And a, a, a bit uh, you see, later, we see the same policy manifested through the efforts of Dai Muhammad al-Nasafi, who was active in Central Asia and managed to penetrate the inner circles of the Samanid court and finally managed to convert the Samanid Amir himself, Amir Nasr II, as well as his wazir and a number of courtiers. It was under such circumstances that uh, in the year 909, the Ismaili, uh, they succeeded in founding through the efforts of one such Dai in, uh, in the region then known as Efriqiya, which actually covers what today is known as Tunisia and part of eastern Algeria, the Fatimid Caliphate, under the leadership of the Ismaili Imam of the time, Abdullah al-Mahdi. Now this signified not only a major success for the Ismailis, who, who now saw their own imam installed uh, to, to the leadership in a major uh, Islamic state, but it was really a success also for the Shia in general, because not since the time of Ali himself had the Ali imams had the chance of, sort of ruling over a major state. This state very soon grew into a major empire, uh, stretching 
all the way from you see Morocco to the Hejaz, Palestine, uh, and Syria. And a bit later, the seat of this state or empire was moved to Egypt, where the Fatimids, who were at the same time the Ismaili, the Ismaili imams, founded the city of Cairo, which served as a major you see, uh, center of learning, arts and sciences and commerce in the Islamic world. While these events were occurring in the western part of the Islamic world, in the east, in the Iranian lands, the Da'is had continued to be active even after the foundation of the Fatimid state because the Fatimids never gave up uh, their universalist aim of extending their rule over the entire Islamic society and beyond. In the Iranian lands, especially since from earlier on the policy was to address the message of the mission to the elite and the educated so classes of the society, the Da'is actually elaborated a new intellectual tradition, which has become so they refer to as philosophical theology. This was the first, uh, in that context, the Ismailis of the Iranian lands were the first Shi'i community to have elaborated this sort of distinct tradition of philosophical theology. Now, what did this mean? The Iranian Da'is of these lands, starting with Abu Yaqub Sejistani and then having Hamid al-Din Kermani, and find, finally, last but not least, with Nasser Khosrow, who was very active uh, in the region of Badakhshan, they amalgamated their Ismaili theology with Neoplatonism and a variety of other Hellenistic philosophical traditions. Why? because they were addressing their message again to the most educated layers of society, and they wanted to maximize the intellectual appeal of their message. And philosophy was the thing in the eastern regions, in the region of Khorasan. So for that reason, they used the most up-to-date, the, the most then fashionable uh, so idioms and themes uh, to enhance, to increase, to, to enhance the, the so intellectual appeal of their message without compromising their own theology, which was founded on the doctrine of Imamat, which had continued to be the central teaching of the Ismailis, like other Shi, like other Shi communities. And that in a so, nutshell, which was also combined with the distinctive cyclical view of, of history propounded by the Ismailis who saw history as a progression of various cycles or eras, each one initiated by a prophet who brought a new sort of message, followed by a a number uh, of imams. Now, in each, in each era, and this, of course, combined with a basic religious 
a system of thought of the Ismailis which made a fundamental distinction between the Zahir and the Batan or the sort of letter of the scriptures and their spirituality or esoteric meaning and essence. So in each era, the authorized guides were the only ones who could, who, who, who had access, who had full knowledge of both the apparent and the hidden. And it was by acknowledging the leadership and the authority of these guides in, in each era that you could have, uh, that one could be guaranteed salvation. So you had to acknowledge the rightful imam of the time. This was really the essence of the message which was garbed in that elegant, very complex, so metaphysical system propounded by the da'is of the Iranian lands. The Ismaili da'wat or mission had its longest and sort of uh, most successful achievement outside of the domains of the Fatimid state. Oddly enough, within the Fatimid state, where, when, where Ismailism was the law of the land and Ismailis received the protection of the state, the Ismailis continued to be a minority. But outside of the Fatimid state, it was there that the Ismailis did achieve their long-lasting success, especially in the Iranian lands. And this activity actually continued even after the Sunni Saljuks had replaced the Shi'i Buyids, who were the real overlords of the Sunni Abbasids who, who ruled from Baghdad. It was, for instance, at that time that we have one of the most learned Ismaili Dais. These Dais were, of course, at the same time, the scholars and authors of the community. Dai Al-Mayyid Feddin Shirazi, who was uh, from Shiraz, and there he had actually managed to convert the Buyid ruler of Fars, Abu Khalijah, and then was obliged to flee to Egypt, where he became the chief Dai, a post he held for almost 20 years until he died in 1078. And, and another sort of very highly learned die of the time uh, was, as I mentioned, Nasser Khosrow, was born in the year uh, 1004. He converted to Ismailism at a later age, went to Cairo to further his Ismaili education, and went back to Badakhshan, his, his native region, to, to propagate you know, Ismailism there, like most other dais, was persecuted by the local Sun, Sun, Sunni authorities and was, was obliged to seek exile in the remote valley of Yomgan. And there he, from the midst of the Pamir Mountains, he became quite successful in spreading the message of Ismailism. And uh, that is the reason why the, the Ismaili communities of those mountainous regions today situated uh, in Tajikistan, Afghanistan, the northern areas of Pakistan, and a corner of China, they do regard him as the founder of 
their communities and he's held in very high esteem. By the 1050s, the Seljuks had established their rules. In fact, the Turks, it was the era of the Turks over the Iranian lands in succession to Arabs. By that time, there was one chief, Dai, who had his secret headquarters near the city of Esfahan, which was one of the main Seljuk capitals. The chief Dai of the time was somebody by the name of Abdul Malik ibn Attash, who was a very, a very sort of uh, learned Dai. But his importance is in history is that he recognized the talents of a then so newly convert Hassan Sabah. Hassan Sabah himself had been born in Qom in the mid-1050s. Soon afterwards, you see, the family had moved to the nearby city of Ray. Both of these uh, sort of cities had served as traditional seats of Shi'i learning. And Ray had always been a stronghold for the for a stronghold of the activities of Ismaili dies. And it was there that Hassan around the age of seventeen was converted to Ismailism and he was brought to the attention of Abdul Malik who took him to the headquarters of the Dawat in Isfahan and then on his recommendation he went uh, to Fatimid Egypt again to further his Ismail education, came back to Iran. His so experience in Egypt must have helped him shape his own new revolutionary policy. Because Hassan Sabah now begins a completely new phase in, in the development of Ismailism. He is already charting an independent revolutionary course. And in order to understand this sort of you know, accurately, we must bear in mind that Hassan had a complex set of religio-political motives. As a Shia, he could not tolerate the anti-Shi'i policies of, of, of the Sunni Seljuk Turks who, who, who had then newly established their, their uh, rule over the Iranian lands. But his revolution was also an expression of his, I would say, Iranian national sentiments. Because Persians had continued all along under the Arabs and then the Turks to be conscious and aware of their Persian identity and cultural heritage. And it was perhaps the second factor that explains the early success of Hassan al-Sabah's movement in Iran. Not all those who came uh, to his support were Ismaili Shi'is. Many of them were Iranians who 
detested the alien rule of Seljuks, who also lived havoc in the countryside and raised heavy taxes and so on, so forth. So it was to uproot Seljuk rule that Hassan Sabah organized this revolutionary movement from his headquarters in the fortress of Alamut. And he devised an appropriate strategy which was the right response to the type of organization and rule offered by the Saljuks. I must also add that it was as an expression of his Iranian sentiments that Hassan, for the first time now, adopts Persian language, as I mentioned, in preference to Arabic as the religious language of the Ismailis of the Iranian lands. And, that, and this explains why the literature produced by the Ismailis of those regions from that time onwards up until now has been all written in Farsi. Hassan, of course, in response to the decentralized nature of Sajuk rule, aimed to uproot the Saljuks locality by locality and Amir by Amir. And as I said, he devised, he designed a strategy that was appropriate to, uh, to sort of the reality of uh, his uh, struggle. The Saljuks, of course, were much more powerful in, in uh, sort of military terms. They very easily could mobilize large armies, and these armies were sent from early on. But Hassan actually established himself in the fortress of Alamut in the year 1090, already by two years later, 1092, when he had already founded a state within the very heart of, uh, of, uh, of, of the Saljuk state. Uh, the Saljuks, under the advice of Nizam al-Mulk, who was the chief vizier to two Saljuk sultans, had sent major expeditions against Alamut. But these expeditions and many more to follow uh, achieved uh, very sort of little. By the time Hassan died in 1124, the Ismailis had actually managed to extend their sway throughout a number of regions within Iran, not only in parts of Daylam, one Alamut, and a number of other youth fortresses. Some 100 such youth fortresses uh, were situated, but also in the region of, of, of Gomez, where near the city of Damiqan, uh, the Ismailis had come to possess the a major fortress, the fortress uh, of Gerdku, as well as a region in the southeastern part of Khorasan, and also other sort of, uh, sort of lesser uh, you know, areas of Iran. This Ismaili state lasted 166 years. But, our, but already by the time of Hassan Sabah's death in 1124, a sort of stalemate 
had occurred between the Ismailis of the Iranian lands and the Seljuks. And the Seljuks, in, in spite of their much superior military power and their campaigns, had failed to dislodge the Ismailis from their fortress, from uh, their fortress communities. This state was ruled by three dais and five imams by the year 1256 when the first Mongol invasions occurred. The Ismailis had also extended their patronage of learning to non-Ismailis. We must bear in mind that from the beginning, from the time of Hassan al-Sabah himself, the Ismailis also elaborated to their, uh, their various intellectual traditions and teachings in response to change to circumstances. And Hassan himself had founded a major library in the fortress of Alamut and later other major Ismaili fortresses in both Syria and Iran had come to possess major collections of manuscripts as well as scientific instruments. And as I said, uh, they actually throughout the course of uh, the Alamut period, especially towards the end, after the initial Mongol invasions, they extended their patronage of learning to many uh, other Muslims, including numerous Muslim scholars, foremost among whom was Khaji Nasiruddin Tusi, a major figure of Shi'i thought who spent 30 years among the Ismailis in Khurasan and then at Alamut. And this was the, perhaps the most productive period in the life of Tusi, during which time he made major contributions to almost every field of learning, theology, philosophy, Sufism, uh, uh, Ismaili thought as well, you know, astronomy and so on. And in, and in fact, he was so impressed by the Ismailis that he willingly converted to Ismailism as he has explained in his spiritual autobiography, Yusir Vasuluk. A completely new so era in Ismaili history, especially in the Iranian lands, began with the Mongol invasions. The Mongols had two objectives. One Holaku led the major Mongol expedition to Iran. The first objective was to destroy the Ismaili state of Iran, which had been founded some 166, 65 years earlier by Hassan Sabba. And secondly, he was to proceed to Baghdad and to uproot the Abbasid Caliphate. He achieved his first objective with much difficulty. It took him quite a while to uh, uh, finally manage to force the surrender of Alamut, which was really the seat of this state. Large numbers of Ismailis were massacred by the Mongols, especially in the region of Khorasan. Many who had survived the Mongol swords 
emigrated to adjacent lands where Ismaili communities already existed, especially uh, uh, to Central Asia, Afghanistan, and Sindh. Now, in this new era, once again, the Ismailis were obliged to observe very strictly the taghiyya, or precaution, precautionary dissimulation. They had to hide their true religious beliefs. They adopted various disguises, including uh, Sunnism, but they developed special kind of rapport or, or coalescence with Sufism or, or Islamic uh, mysticism. It's from this time that we see the use of Sufi concepts, terms like peer and murid by the Ismailis peer, which was applied to the highest rank in the religious hierarchy of the community. It was also applied to the person of the Imam himself, and murid was an ordinary Ismaili. Now, during this time, this period which lasted for a, f a few centuries, this Sufi sort of dissimulation was used and practiced without the Ismailis having been affiliated to any of the Sufi orders which were then uh, developing in Iran uh, and Central Asia. Around the year, around uh, the middle of 15th century, the Ismaili Imams emerged in the village of Anjudan, not too far from Iraq, Qom, and Mahallat in central Iran, initiating what has been referred to as the Anjudan revival in medieval Ismaili history. Until then, various Ismaili communities in Iran, in Badakhshan, in Syria, and in South Asia had developed independently of one another, and for the most part, they had also been deprived of the central leadership of their imams who had gone into hiding after the Mongol sort of uh, invasions. But now the imams emerge in the village of Anjudan and attempt to revive their da'wat activities and send trustworthy dais and agents to these various communities. These sort of activities became particularly successful in Central Asia and South Asia. So the, the fact that a large Ismaili community exists in various parts of, South, of, uh, of Central Asia, especially in the region of Badakhshan, which today, which today is divided by the Oxus River between Tajikistan and Afghanistan, is really due to the success of the, of the activities of the Ismaili Daba during the Anjodan period, which lasted from around 1450 until uh, about 17 uh, by the establishment of Safavid rule in 1501 over Iran, uh, to the Safavids who, who now adopted 12 Shi'ism as the official religion of the realm, the Ismailis, especially in those uh, sort of regions, 
of the Iranian world now adopted a second form of disguise, twelve Shiism, which was the politically correct form of Shiism. But uh, a, a phenomenon which has really not received enough scholarly attention is the long-term practice of Taqiyya. What happens when a community pretends to be something else, but for a long time? What happens is that eventually the cover that was, that was originally adopted as a form of precautionary dissimulation becomes uh, I mean, uh, sort of serves to affect the true identity of that community. So what happened, in short, in Iran was that large Ismaili communities did actually integrate into the dominant 12-year Shi'i community of the Iranian lands, but not so in Central Asia, uh, where 12 Shiism was never very strong, and also in India, where a variety of religious communities always, ex you know, uh, they always existed side by side. That was really, in short, a brief sort of overview. Now, by the middle of nine, by the middle of 18th century. The Ismaili imams of this branch, who had been living in Iran, they emerged into uh, public life and political you see, prominence as governors of various uh, provinces, beginning with, uh, with the province of Kerman, where the 44th imam, uh, uh, by the name uh, of Sayyid Abul Hassan Kahaki, who died in 1792, was appointed to the governorship of Kerman by Karim Khan Zand. A post that was also held by his grandson, Hassan Ali Shah, who received the honorific title of Aqa Khan from Fat Ali Shah, a title which has remained amongst his uh, descendants. The, uh, modern Nizari Ismaili Imams. The first Aga Khan was also appointed to the governorship of Qom and Mahallad by Fatali Shah. And then later, in the time of Fatali Shah's grandson and successor, Muhammad Shah, the first Aga Khan was also appointed to the governorship of the province of Kerman a post he held for about two years, from 1835 to 1837. Then under some obscure circumstances, which, had, which may also ha have had to do with uh, the ambitions of the chief vizier to the position of uh, uh, the so master of one of the Suf the branches, while the first Aga Khan actually, he lent his support to the candidacy of, of another person. Anyway, a series of conflicts, you see, broke out between the Ismaili Imam, 
the 45th and the Qajar the, the Qajar order the Qajar establishment it finally uh, it deteriorated into the military encounters and the first Aqam was eventually obliged to leave Iran permanently his ancestral home in, in so 1840 and went to India and sort of a few, a, a few years later he settled down permanently in the city of Bombay which then ushered in the modern sort of period, the modern era uh, of Ismaili history. So in brief, much of the history of the Ismailis did occur over to the Iranian lands and the dies of the Iranian lands played a major role in contributing to the intellectual traditions of the community and it was really due to the efforts of Hassan Sabah that Ismailism actually managed uh, to survive outside of the Fatimid state in the Iranian lands while uh, within the Fatimid state Ismailism uh, actually disappeared almost completely soon after the fall of the Fatimid Caliphate in the year 1171. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and your patience. <laughs> Sure, sure, yes. Yes? Um, would you say that the manuscripts that have been uncovered are largely in Farsi? And how far back do these manuscripts hmm. Manuscripts are in three scripts. I mean, there are in two scripts and a variety of languages. So in Arabic script, which means either they are in Arabic or Farsi. During the early period and the Fatimid period, all these texts were written in Arabic except for the works of Nasser Khosro. Nasser Khosro was the only Da'i author scholar of the Fatimid period who wrote all of his works in Persian. And then, as we saw from the time of Hassan Sabah onwards, the Ismailis of the Iranian lands they produce all of their uh, sort of religious literature again in Persian. And uh, now the Arabic texts were obviously preserved by the Arabic speaking Ismailis, mostly in Syria and Yemen, from where these texts were subsequently transferred to the Indian subcontinent. So, but so uh, the, the, the bulk of these uh, so Arabic manuscripts, I would say, are currently preserved in Syria, Yemen, and South Asia. Whereas in Iran and Central Asia and adjacent parts in you know, uh, you know, Afghanistan and so on, all the manuscripts are in uh, Persian. We, we have a third script, the Khochki script, which was, written, which was actually devised by 
the Nizari Ismaili Khojas of the subcontinent, and they have produced a very rich literature, the so-called Genan Yuzi literature, uh, which is expressed in Gujarati and uh, several other Indic languages, but mostly written in the Khojki manuscript. At the Institute, we have a large collection also of the Khojki manuscripts. And uh, now most of the Ismaili manuscripts in Arabic and Persian are not very old. But they have this tradition of copying these manuscripts has been ongoing. And uh, they are mostly from 18th, uh, I mean, the manuscripts which have come to light are mostly from 18th century and, and onwards. Very few predate 18th century. But uh, the works that, of, of course, were uh, you know, written in Fatimid times, it's true that we, we do not have the original or very old copies, but the tradition of copying these texts was in place, and we do have more sort of, I mean, we have subsequent copies of those originals. Yes? Yes, um, thank you for the talk. The general question uh, is actually two parts to it. The, the separation that occurred from the seventh Imam onward, did the concept of the Twelver Shiism exist even at that time, or did it not exist? And if it did, this separation or schism that occurred, uh, how did the Ismailis um, justify or, or, or rationalize this separation despite their dissatisfaction uh, with the statute <coughs> and their motivation to make changes? So that's the first part. And then the right. second part is a more contemporary question. Given the small numbers of Ismailis that live in, um, um, in, other, in, in, in even is Islamic world, how are they treated, and, and are they still forced to, uh, practice, to, the, to practice this? Yeah. To answer, you, uh, you know, your first uh, your f first question first. Shiism was extremely, you see, fluid at the beginning. When you look at uh, the heresiographical record of the early Shi groups and sects, they list something like more than. Uh, you know, 70 groups. You know, many of them just came and went, you know, in a very short, short, uh, short period of time. Imam Shiism was, a, of course, a major community. And uh, as I mentioned, on the death of Imam Sadiq, who was the, uh, the sixth Imam, He's, she has split into six groups. One of the groups eventually became known as the Twelver Shia. So, so obviously at the time of Imam As-Sadiq, there was nothing sacred or known about the figure, you see, 12. The figure of 12 was in fact fixed uh, much later on. Uh, so it was uh, quite it's normal for a Shi group to split, you know. And in fact, you see, always one of these groups denied the death of the last Imam, and so expected his return, his imminent return, as the 
Mahdi. So that Mahdi concept was there from, you know, uh, you know already from the year uh, seven, uh, hundred. In reply to your second question, the Ismailis, of course, live as religious you see, minorities everywhere today, you know, in the world. Where there is, you see, religious, you see, freedom and practice, like in Western countries, you know, they sort of do not need to practice, you see, dissimulation. But in some less fortunate, you know, part of the world, let's say, uh, in northern areas of Pakistan or in Afghanistan, specifically, uh, in, you know, uh, in our own time, uh, in some villages, uh, obviously, they are obliged to dissimulate. In Iran, they do not dissimulate, but uh, it, they've had a shifting uh, sort of situation during the Islamic Revolution. But right now, they are not being persecuted. Uh, they're left to you know, practice you know, their own faith and within the community. But they are being, of course, very closely watched uh, by the regime. Yes, the gentleman back there. Thank you for the How conversion from Shiism today in Iran could be viewed if you become an Ismaili today? Do you have any knowledge of that? What do you mean? Yeah. The reason I say that is to be, you know, someone like Baha'i for uh. converting from Shia Islam to uh, uh. another religion. No, I see. Well, Baha'ism, of course, is a completely different story. You know, Ismailis are recognized as a bona fide uh, Shia community, even by, by, by the existing establishment in Iran, you know. But Ismailis today in the world, they do not attempt uh, to convert. I mean, you know, they, they uh, you see, although you can, you can become an Ismaili, you know, if you like to, the Ismailis themselves, the, the Ismaili sort of leadership, is not seeking an active conversion, I mean, is not following an active conversion policy. They are more interested, <laughs> I would say, in educating the existing members of the community at various ages, rather than sort of bringing new persons on board. That is not a priority for them at all. Yes? That's how it began, yes. But one can see now from the Safavid dynasty the opposite, actually. The history has shown that the Ismailis have become more quietist yes. now, yes. and the Twelvers have become the opposite, actually. That's a Jamal very good point. Very good point, yes. Yeah. So what do you explain the switch between the, the, the two movements? Circumstances. <laughs> Realpolitik. Real <laughs> the circum circumstances of the time. Uh, the Safavids, as you know, were the sheikhs of a Sufi order, which was 
very uh, you know militant from <coughs> from from the beginning and there were sunnis uh, the uh, the all of the safavid sheikhs until shah ismail were sunnis but upon uh, acceding to to the throne they switched they fabricated uh, an Ali genealogy for themselves, uh, tracing their descent to Imam Musa Akazim, and they also began to propagate initially a very radical form of Shiism. It was not 12 Shiism at the beginning. It was a very eclectic form of, of uh, Shiism, which was a mixture of the beliefs uh, of Turkomans, who were the backbone of the Safavid armies. The Mahdi concept was there. Shah Ismail, for a while, actually claimed to be, or wanted to claim to be the Mahdi. It was gradually, it, it actually took them, it took them you know, about a century to you know, calm down and tone down the sort of radicalism of their Shiism, and they fell more in line with what we with what was so uh, you know better known as uh, as to, um, as twelver Shiism. As for the Ismailis, after the fall of Alamut, they lost the political power. They is no longer you cannot be radical without its political power or without wanting to gain political. Power. But if you have no political you see, ambition, then you can uh, accept you know, the status quo and uh, live peacefully. And that's what you know, the Ismailis have done for the most part after, uh, after uh, losing the political you see, prominence with the fall of Alamut in 1256. Seven stages of philosophy. Uh, seven stages. No, in two contexts I spoke of seven. Seven cycles of religious history of mankind. And also in the anti-Ismaili polemics, seven stages of initiation through which the Da'i took the new convert, which would ultimately take him to the seventh stage of, of you know, atheism. And so libertinism and, you know, yeah. So is that still part of the philosophy there? In no. In the, in the genuine Ismaili texts that have come to light, there is no mention of any set sort of number of stages. You know, pedagogy is always obviously gradual. I mean, you know, you sort of move from the simpler to with more complex fields and so on, but you do not really find any sort of reference whatsoever to, to any sort of fixed you see, number of stages through which uh, uh, sort of the education of a new convert would, pro uh, would proceed. Assassination was, uh, as I said, was part of the policy designed by Hassan al-Sabba. He did not 
invent that that policy was adhered to by all groups at the time, including see, the Crusaders, the Seljuks, you see themselves. But since he could not, you see, mobilize large armies to combat the Seljuks, he aimed to remove their key individuals, you know, Amirs and so on, uh, on a sort of regional basis. But of course, that served to provide the basis for a whole uh, sort of a series of myths because every assassination of any importance in the central Islamic lands at the time was usually attributed to the Ismailis, whereas the actual such missions were really not to see that many. Emulation. Taqlid, you mean? Yes. Well, you know, Khaji Tusi had, he, uh, he made, um, you know, as I sort of very briefly mentioned, you know, in my talk, he made major contributions to the Ismailis thought of the late Alamut period. And then, you, you see, after that, up, uh, you know, after the fall of Alamut, uh, you know, the Khaji was a very clever man. He was always interested in seeking patrons who, would enable him to do his work. I mean, and then, you know, it, it was after the fall of Alamut that he uh, joined the service of Holaku, and with whose help he managed to have that major, you see, observatory in Amaraga. And then he made major contribution to Imami 12 Shi'i thought of the period, I mean, as a so major a contributor. So he he had, I mean, in both forms of, you see, Shiism, he, to, to, uh, to both uh, forms of Shiism, he made major contributions. But the whole concept of ijtihad and uh, taqlid and so on, that, of course, is a, that by itself is a very a complex, complex issue. You have to look at the development since, uh, since, uh, I, I would say around the so greater occultation of the 12th Imam of the 12th Shia and how that field sort of developed and the various uh, schools based in Basra and Baghdad and so on uh, until it really uh, found its uh, the culmination in the Usuli and the uh, Akhbari and the Usuli uh, debate, which raged even down to the 18th century. You know, uh, I cannot cover that here. I mean, one has to really look at the whole range of contributions made by uh, different uh, scholars of 12 Rishis, um, Sheikh Mufid, and you know. So let Up to which point? Up to. Yes. There is an exchange, a dialogue going between Islam, which is not trying to suppress like opposing views, 
Yes, yeah. Limited. Limited. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that that is correct. <laughs> yes? Let me just preface that by one sort of remark. Shiism had never found before, during, or after the Fatimids any strong footholds in, in, in all of uh, North Africa. North Africa traditionally was a stronghold of the Kharijis, where they still exist today, in Algeria and so on, and Sunni Islam, especially of the Maliki form, in, where, uh, you know, in the cities where the Arabs uh, had actually settled. In, in, in the Egypt itself, uh, the Sunni majority belonged to the Shafi'i Mazhab, and there was a very important Coptic community of Christians, as well as important Jewish communities. And you see, all of these communities served under, under the Fatimids, and in fact, many of them came to hold the most important positions of, of the state under the Fatimids. But that was not the case outside, because the, you know, uh, outside of the Fatimid states, especially in the Iranian lands, the Ismailis were operating in regions where Ismailism of the earlier period already had deep roots, in addition to other forms of Shiism, Imami Shiism, Zaydi Shiism in northern Iran. So the ground was more ready for the message of the Ismaili Dais than within the domains of the Fatimid state. That was the reason. That answers my first question. Uh, my you have two questions. <laughs> Yes. Can you speak to the, the ritual of uh, Ashe Bibi Murad and whether it was a deep-rooted Ismaili ritual or borrowed as part of Taqiyya? Bibi Murad of there, there is a, which region are you? Uh, in, in, uh, in Khorasan? Khorasan. The, it's, a, it's an all-female. Murad, yes. You, you're talking about a splinter group, Murad Mirzaiz. Who, who split up from uh, the main uh, Ismaili group at the beginning of the 20th century under the, leadership, the initial lead, leadership of Murad Mirza, and hence they are known as Murad Mirza. Is the leadership of the community was handed down amongst his descendants, including his granddaughter, Bibi Atalat. They have become almost the same as 12 Shia now. Almost. It's a very small community based at the village of Sedeh in southern Khorasan. You had one question. Let, let me give this young gentleman a chance. Yes? Can you talk a little bit about sort of the broader influence of the Smiley intellectual class on other 
you have to buy some of our publications for that. <laughs> I cannot give you all of that in one lecture. We have a lot of actually books that deal with uh, uh, that deal precisely with what you are now raising the broader implications and you know contributions. Of course, language, yes. Language was, of course, a barrier. I mean, uh, when Hassan Sabah chose Persian as the language of the community, in a sense, uh, the community, not completely, but in a sense, was actually cut off from the earlier literature produced in Arabic, which, of course, had was, uh, you see, preserved by the Ismailis of Syria, who used Arabic. Uh, but of course, uh, we do know that, for instance, uh, these Arabic books of the Fatimid times were available in the library at, at, uh, at Alamut. And Tusi, who worked there for a long time, we have evidence that he did see some of uh, these earlier Arabic texts and used them you know, in his own work. Yes, no. You don't have to do anything, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you can convert if you like to, but you are not, op you are not obliged to. Yes, yeah. I don't know. Unfortunately, I wasn't there at the time, otherwise I would, I would let you know. It's not. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's not forced. Actually, throughout uh, through throughout uh, history, throughout their history, with the exception of the very sort of first phase, the opening phase, the Ismailis were never interested in mass conversion or in forced conversion. Never. Yes. Oh, that's the <laughs> 50, 50 million dollar question. I have reserved my answer for a later date. <laughs> yes? So, what is the difference between Ismailis and Shias in terms of concepts? Ismailis are Shias. I mean, okay, you, you have to be very precise. You have to say what's the difference between Ismailis, let's say Shias, and Zaydi Shias, or you know, Esnajari Shias. What's your question? Okay. All oh, right. What are the differences in terms of their zakat and homes and types? You know, of no, I mean the payments are. Is that the same kind of rules? More or less, yes. Names are not always the same, but uh, essence, the essence, you know, is the same. There are donations to uh, the religious leadership of the community. To the supreme religious leader of of the community, who is a person of the imam of the time. There are slight differences. Numbers are not, you know, exactly the same. Yes. Uh, how much knowledge do you have of uh, Ismailis from China? 
Nasser Khosrow. The Ismailis of that region in, uh, you know, Xinjiang now, are they? They so ethnically regard themselves as Tajiks, and they speak uh, they speak Uyghur, Turkish. The literature is pretty much the same as the literature of their neighboring Badakhshani Ismailis. So to our knowledge, which is not much because, you know, only in recent times we have found access to that region and to that community, they do not seem to have elaborated a specific local you see, tradition you see, of their own. They are uh, really, ex uh, they followed more or less the same traditions and rituals and uh, sort of literary traditions as the Ismailis of Badakhshan. Time for one more question. One more question. The, the last question. Yes? Well, you mentioned again, I'll, I'll go back to this uh, revolutionary thought, so I, I'm very interested in that, of the Ismailis from the beginning, and you mentioned that the quietism of Imam Sadeh, um, his father was also very scholar, uh, as, as you know, Muhammad Baver, yes. also in that, and wasn't quote-unquote revolutionary in the no. today's sense, uh, like Imam Hussein, for example. Right? No. Uh, however, the Zaydis, Activists in terms of their very, very policy of from from the beginning, so but not in terms of their teachings. I see. So, yeah. So if, if that's why I wanted to understand why didn't the Ismailis or or not? I mean, the first people who were the adherents of Ismailis, weren't, why didn't they go with the ideas of Zaydis? I mean, if they, they were into because no, because because the earliest you see Ismailis. They split from the Imami Shia. So they had inherited uh, the heritage and the traditions of the Imami Shia, which had been already set from the time of Imam al Baghir specifically. I see. I see. So they believed in that yeah. lineage. Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.